Shift M podcast. Welcome, everybody. We have a special guest today, Adam Thornhill. Uh, Adam is a software developer, definitely, uh, a book writer, uh, founder of a platform which analyzes the quality of uh, source code repositories, and which is the most interesting, in my opinion, for us now for the discussion. Uh, Adam is the author of a concept of the or the idea of how uh, source code can be analyzed and represented graphically in order to um, to enable um, better decisions about further improvements or refactorings. That's what I understand. That's what I understand from your blog and from a number of your presentations, which I've heard. So Adam, can you tell us briefly what it, whether I'm right or wrong and what, what, it, what, it, what this method is about? Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to do that. So I've been calling the concept of behavioral code analysis. And um, basically the challenge I tried to address was that um, all the static analysis tools I've been using in the past were pretty good at kind of detecting issues. They were pretty good as a low level feedback loop when writing code, but they weren't particularly good at um, prioritizing the findings if you apply them to a larger system. So what I decided to do was instead of starting from the perspective of the source code, I started from the perspective of the humans, the people writing the code, the developers. So basically tap into version control to find patterns in how we as developers interact with the code we're building. And I kind of use that to deduce a bunch of interesting information. For example, identifying what I call hotspots, parts of the code that are being worked on the most. I can also identify things like implicit dependencies that aren't visible in the source code itself that can further inform us about their architecture. And finally, I applied a bunch of visualizations heavily inspired by forensic psychology to kind of uh, be able to communicate around something as abstract as source code with non-technical stakeholders. So that's the very short version. So I created an account in your system a few days ago, and I played a little bit with this uh, analysis uh, mechanism, which analyzed my source code base. And it gave me this uh, small and uh, large circles for certain parts of the code, um, which was very interesting for me as a software developer. But I'm questioning myself whether this information will help the managers, the people who make uh, the decisions about resource allocation in the software team. Uh, to actually make better decisions? Will they pay attention to that? So um, my experience is that, uh, yes, I think we get there. We might not be 100% there yet, but I think it's one of the most important things we can do in the software business to make a code quality of business concern. Because uh, code quality is going to constrain us as a business, what we can do with our system, how we can evolve our own business. So my experience is that um, our manager, a non-technical manager won't necessarily understand the information out of the box the way it is today. But if you sit down with them and you explain to them what it actually means in financial terms, then they do get it and they start to pay attention to it. So I've been fortunate to work with uh, lots of companies around the globe over the past uh, five, six years. And um, my experience is that uh, once they understand it, they do embrace it and they tend to use it heavily for things like uh, planning and prioritizing. So they basically get back to the software team and they say, I understand where are the most risky part of the code. And I, I would like you guys to focus on that in the next sprint. Yeah, that, that could be one example uh, because one thing I've observed over and over again, I know this is also supported by the technical depth research community is that uh, so many developers and development teams are forced within quotation marks to, uh, 
take on technical debt. So if you don't really understand source code, it's very, very easy to make this trade-off and say, hey, let's get this feature in. We don't, we don't really care about maintainability. And uh, what happens is that software developers kind of lack a vocabulary to explain the consequences to managers. I think the technical debt metaphor doesn't really work there. And um, so what I kind of like to do now is to also kind of empower software developers so that we can have this conversation with management and say, yeah, sure, we can do this. But look, look, the code, all of this code is red, right? It's already a mess. And if we squeeze this feature in, we're going to put the sustainability of the whole code base at risk. So that's uh, the situation I would like to get to. You know, in most cases, um, and I can confirm that being a software developer, uh, programmers actually are scared of uh, demonstrating, of revealing this information to their managers, because the first question would be, how come you claim to be a good programmer or programmers and your code all of a sudden is in red? So what's going on? You know? Yeah, 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 that can uh, definitely happen. And uh, I think one issue is that um, uh, th there are so many there. It's not only the source code, it's only, only also about the whole organizational side of software, right? But um, I kind of like to think that the reason we, we end up in situations like that is because we, we simply lack visibility into software and we lack visibility for a long, long time. So once the problems become too obvious, it's already a mess that's going to be extremely expensive to sort out. So I think it's a very delayed feedback loop there. In one of your presentations, you said that uh, in one project you detected, uh, if I remember correctly, 4,000 years of a technical debt. Uh, that sounds like a scary number, but can you explain what it means, 4,000 years of technical debt? Yeah, 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 exactly. That's, um, yeah, that's one story I shared. It was actually one of my first clients when I started CodeSyn. So very early on, I often supported my client hands-on with getting started which was a good learning opportunity for me as well. And uh, this team, they had used a static analysis tool prior to my arrival and thrown it at our 15-year-old code base, right? And this uh, tool simply reported that, hey, look, you have 4,000 years of technical depth on this 15-year-old code base. And it sounds absolutely crazy, but of course, a lot of that depth uh, grew in parallel. And in fact, a lot of it isn't really technical depth because a static analysis tool can never measure technical depth. What it can do is it can measure the remediation cost, the cost to fix it. So that's basically how these tools work. They kind of scan the code base, they find some construct that violates some of their rules. And then they have a number associated with that, that refactoring this will cost you two hours. So now we have two hours of technical debt. Continue to scan, find something else, public method that lacks documentation or whatever. Takes you five minutes to fix, you sum it up, two hours and five minutes of technical debt. So that's basically how it works. The issue I have with it is that even if that number is kind of accurate, it's not really accurate, right? It's depressing, but it's not really helpful because what we're lacking is kind of the priorities on top of that. What do you think a team or managers of the team can do when they hear such a number, 4,000 years? What's the next step? Where to start? Oh, that's where it often becomes dangerous. So in my my experience, what many teams do in that case, or many managers, is that they put some quantitative goal on it. So they say things like, all right, we have uh, 4,000 years of technical debt. Uh, the first thing that happens is that everything that's categorized as an improvement or just a warning, that kind of goes out of the window. You throw that away. 
then you focus on the major issues and you might have like 7,000 major issues. And then you put the quantitative goal on it and say that, okay, let's bring it down from 7,000 to 5,000. And we, you know, when I hear something like that, I can always advise against it because I think first of all, it's dangerous with a quantitative goal like that because it completely lacks a connection to the actual business, right? So I think the only way to kind of prioritize those uh, issues is based on the business impact. Many of them might not even have to be fixed. Others are critical to fix now. It seems to me that prevention of a technical debt growth is way more important than fixing it later. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely agree. And uh, there is this wonderful research paper that I, I quoted it in Software Design X-Rays that actually looked at the, when is technical debt introduced? Because I, uh, for a long, long time, I kind of just assumed that, uh, you know, when we write code, the first piece of code we write is always beautiful, right? And then at some point, it kind of starts to degrading. It gets a bit worse. But that's not really what happens with technical debt. What this piece of research showed was that most technical debt is actually introduced in the very first iteration on a module or a file. So kind of anything we can do to prevent that from getting in is, I think, vital. Because once we have technical debt, it's always expensive to pay it down. And it's always that conflict with what we want to do with the product. And to prevent that, we do what? We do style checking, static analysis. How do we prevent the, the debt uh, to grow in the code base? It's, it's always multiple things. I'm uh, personal. I'm a, I'm a big fan of uh, automating as much as we can. So uh, what we do ourselves at CodeSim, because we, we kind of, we always been eating our own dog food, right? So we have CodeSim as a quality gate. So that's the first thing. So if any code declines in, uh, quality, then we kind of uh, stop the build and we have to fix it. But it also goes to things like, um, I like peer reviews. Uh, I'm not a big fan of style checkers. And, um, but I do like peer reviews because it's, it's also a good way of kind of ensuring that what we do is on track with the style we want to have on the project. And uh, then I also think it's uh, one of the most important components is of course the skills of the team, right? So if, if you don't have it, it's going to be challenging anyway. So having really, really good developers definitely helps because those people are aware of all these pitfalls. You're saying you don't, you don't, you're not a fan of, of style checkers, but um, how do you measure objectively the, the size of this debt? I mean, looking at the source code, let's say the Java file with the Java class or you know, what have you, Lisp class, uh, you have to, your tool, has to tell us what is what is the what is wrong with this file, and in order to do that, you need to have metrics, not people uh, object subjectively looking at the file. You have to have some instrument which will objectively tell you, okay, the quality of this file is five point three, and another file is seven point two. So, what if not style checking? How else we can measure that uh, quality? So, I always try to separate them. Uh, I, I think static, uh, static analysis is very valuable, right? So, uh, but there's a subset of it that I find value in personally. And that value is um, the things that actually impacts our ability as humans to understand source code. And those are things like, you know, uh, deeply nested logic, for example, this would be softer for any software maintainer. But then there are other uh, more stylistic issues, like uh, where do you place your curly braces? Uh, does every public method have a common stuff like that? 
that I think uh, don't make up good general rules. Of course, consistency, it's, I mean, it's always a good thing, right? But it's not that important in my experience. Mm -hmm. Does that help in clarifying what I meant? It does. In, in, again, in, a few, in one of your presentations, you mentioned that uh, a number of really objective metrics, and I, a few of them I really like very much. For example, uh, this bumpy road uh, metric or code smell type, which you, which you suggested. Uh, it, it seems to me a little bit controversial because I always thought that the code which is written in a more uh, hierarchical and nested style is better than the code which is more imperative and uh, directive where instructions go one by one. But it seems that this metric is quite opposite. So can you explain how it works, this bumpy road uh, code smell? Yeah, yeah, sure. I'm happy to do that. So the inspiration from that actually came from a research paper. I, a lot of the things I do with codes and I try as far as possible, I try to base it on actual research because I think that uh, one issue with the software industry is that we have so many opinions and uh, not enough facts. So I try to do my best. And um, what I found out was that there was this brilliant research done by Ericsson on their large telecom systems, where they found out that um, one of the best predictors of software effects were actually deeply nested logic, you know, if statements inside if statements. So I started to look into that. And then I kind of did this observation that uh, some functions, some methods that had mul multiple chunks of deeply nested logic in its implementation were more defect prone. And uh, I ca simply call that code smell the bumpy road because it kind of looks like, you know, you're driving on a bumpy road, it will, just like it slows down your driving, it will slow your, down your uh, code reading speed and your ability to comprehend the code. And I also like to think that it's a worse code smell and just purely nested logic because each one of these chunks of uh, nested logic that make up the bumpy road, they kind of suggest a separate responsibility. So why not extract them, put a name on them? Because uh, as a psychologist, I know that, you know, putting a name on things, it's one of the best things we can do to kind of optimize our working memory. So you're suggesting that the code has to be as close to the left border of the screen as possible. As a general recommendation, uh, yes, there are always tons of exceptions, of course. But yes, I, I like to have it at that level. And I'm also I'm not, also not um, really a fan of imperative code, right? I've been doing uh, closure programming for the past six years full time. So I'm more of a functional programmer, right? But that's always what I try to do. I try to avoid explicit conditionals as far as possible. Mm -hmm. And you have a tool, you have a, a software which calculates this uh, deepness of uh, nesting, for example, inside your code scene platform. Do we do you have uh, automated instruments for calculating that? Yes, we do. We do. So uh, what we did in code scene was that uh, we developed a concept that we call uh, code health, which basically answers how health is your code. And the reason it's called code health and not code quality is because uh, code quality is such an it's a little bit of an overused term and it's uh, highly subjective. So what Code Health did is uh, we simply identified 25 factors that we know from research that they correlate with increased maintenance cost and increased risk for defects. And then we talked codes in to kind of uh, detect those smells. And um, using our large, large baseline library, we built an algorithm that can simply uh, 
collect the information on all these 25 factors and aggregate them into a unified categorization of uh, green code, yellow code, and red code. So that's something we can use to very quickly assess a complex hotspot or, or subsystem or part of the code. Did I manage to explain that? Yeah, definitely. And another metric is definitely code complexity, which you also pay attention to. But many people criticize this metric for, uh, for attributing it to code health or code quality. They say that complexity doesn't necessarily lead to uh to lower quality sometimes so this c complexity uh, is better inside one method than uh, multiple methods with uh, visually lower complexity but uh overall the program will be less uh, uh, less understandable so what's your take on this cyclomatic complexity yeah cyclomatic complexity is one of the classics so uh, really really old way of measuring complexity and it's uh it's interesting. If you look at the research, you find that um, once you start to control for the number of lines of code, cyclomatic complexity in general doesn't add any further predictive value. However, I, I find it useful because uh, it's useful as an indication. Cyclomatic complexity is useful because it kind of tends, tells you how many unit tests you have to write for a particular function or a chunk of function. So that's mostly what I'm using it for. And I find in, part, in combination with the uh, simple lines of code metric, uh, you can get some additional insights, but on its own, it's not a particularly good metric. And uh, I believe that much better than lines of code is the metric which, which you call code churn, right? Which indicates the amount of changes people make to those lines of code. Yeah, that's right. Because, um, yeah, we started out this conversation by talking about um, trying to calculate static and uh, uh, cal calculate technical depth via static analysis. And uh, the problem with that is that you get a completely flat perspective. So you can easily figure out that this code is the most complicated. That doesn't mean that's the part of the code that you should start to invest in fixing. So what I do instead is I calculate code churn. And I do that by looking in version control and I simply figure out which code is being changed the most by the development team. Because the code that's being changed the most is clearly the one where you should make sure that you have as healthy code as possible because you spend most of your time there. So I always find that we kind of need both perspectives. We need to figure out where do we work, where are our hotspots, but we also need to figure out how healthy is that code, how healthy are our hotspots. So that combination has been uh, very, very useful for me when uh, working with large systems. And do you think we uh, need to uh, reward programmers for uh, keeping metrics high and somehow punish them for keeping some metrics low? I think that it, uh, metrics like that, I mean, the, the, the desired quality metrics, they have to be an input to any software development, just like we input requirements or specify features. Uh, I really think so. And uh, I don't think that we can, um, you know, if we put a certain quality bar on it, then that's part of the requirements that we have to deliver on. I think that's very important. Yes. You know how many times in my professional life I've heard complaints from programmers who uh, who were who were forced or not even forced, but who were 
motivated by myself uh, through the metrics. They're always telling me the same complaint. They were saying that uh, we are writing code here. We're making functionality. Our objective is not to please some of the metrics. Our objective is actually to deliver the, the product, the functionality to our customer. And the customer doesn't care about the quality metrics uh, we use inside the, the team. So, 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 tell, so uh, motivating us by the metrics and uh, expecting us to deliver higher numbers instead of delivering better functionality is a completely wrong strategy. That's, that's many people, that's, that's how they complain. So would you answer to them? Yeah, I would say that they're not mutually, mutually exclusive, right? It's, uh, I think it's very dangerous because if you just focus on uh, delivering new features, what you're doing is you're trading uh, short-term wins for the long-term sustainability of your code base, right? So you need to make sure that uh, if you deliver fe new features, you do that with a known quality. I think that's the most important thing. And I'm not, not religious about this, right? I mean, there are many, many situations where it's perfectly fine to take on some technical debt. The important thing is that that should be a conscious decision. You should know why you're doing it. You should know the trade-offs, right? As long as you do that, I think it's perfectly fine. And I do that myself occasionally when needed. The difference is that I, you know, I know all the time what the help of every single piece of code is in the code bases I work on. So, so, so that's a very interesting thought. So, so knowing what's going on is the most important element of a managing of a software project, not forcing people or not forcing people, but knowing what's going on and, uh, and, uh, accepting the reality and understanding that our technical debt is either growing right now or it's stable, or maybe it's even going down, right? That's what you're saying. That's what I'm saying, because, uh, to me, there is much more value in trends than uh, absolute values. So to me, it doesn't really, I mean, it matters, of course, at some level, but the most important thing for me is not if I have a code health of uh, three, five or six, because that number is only good in a context, right? So the trend is what actually carries the value. And that's what allows us to have a conversation if we can move ahead safely with a feature or if we need to take a step back and improve what's already there. Another um, counter argument, which um, I often hear from programmers is that uh, in our project, they might say, uh, we know what's going on. We know where are the, the problems. We know what is the technical debt. We know that this module has to be refactored. We know that this class, the implementation of this class uh, was not done right. So we don't need any metrics. We know what's going on. So all these metrics, they they basically an extra layer on top of our work and they don't give us anything ex extra. What would you answer them? Uh, that's a fantastic argument. I've heard that a couple of times myself. What always happens if you dig a little, little bit deeper is that you figure out that on that team, there might be 20 developers. And uh, there's always one or two people that make these claims. And uh, maybe it's correct. Maybe they are really that experienced. Maybe they have been there from the beginning. Maybe they know exactly where their technical depth is. The problem is that the other 18 people don't know it. Their managers don't know it. And that means you cannot have a meaningful conversation around the maintainability of a code base unless everyone has the same information. Good point. So basically these people, when they are saying that they're trying to protect maybe their positions as the most knowledgeable people in the team. And that could be one motivation, definitely. 
And I also think that there are occasionally, there are, I think there are people that are genuinely uh, tired of um, different types of tools because uh, I've been burned myself in the past by, uh, you know, misapplications of different static analysis tools and that. So uh, there might be that experience link as well, but if, very often I think you're right. You know, I, um, I usually see the reaction of managers, especially managers of higher levels, when uh, you demonstrate them problematic places in the code, problematic places in products, uh, you expose some risks to them, you explain what might go wrong if we don't do certain actions right now. They're not very enthusiastic about this information. Don't, they're not, they don't react positively to that. They're the reaction in most cases will be um, they will they will kick you they will they will kick you back they will say okay you are the programmer so how come you 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 do it? you you manage to allow the situation to happen uh, so they will not react positively with the uh, with the suggestions like spend more resources on this refactoring or plan this technical debt uh, you know uh, removal in the next uh, six months. They will start directly blaming the people who are in the project. So how would you recommend us programmers deliver this information to managers in a way that it will be uh, perceived uh, uh, constructively? Yeah, so that, that's, uh, that's an interesting angle. I think in general, my experience has been better that most managers, they uh, genuinely want to improve, right? Uh, but maybe I'm biased because the people who kind of call me in, they are the ones that already might have some challenges, right? And are open to kind of addressing it. Uh, I think, of course, a blame game at that level doesn't do anyone anything good. Um, and I think that kind of um, framing it in terms of risk rather than financial gains is a very good starting point. Because I tried for years to have the conversation with management about the, uh, you know, cost savings, you know, we can, uh, I, I don't know, you know, we, instead of hiring all these uh, 20 consultants that you have planned, maybe we can get away with five, right? If we address this thing. And in a way that hasn't been successful. And I think it's partly because, uh, you know, to a manager, it's always a good thing, the more people you manage, right? And uh, it's also very counterintuitive that you can get more things done with fewer people. So what I started to talk much more about now is risk. That, uh, you know, I don't point to problems. I just tell them that, you know, uh, this area of the code, do you plan to add any features or new capabilities in that area? If you do, you have to be aware that um, it's very likely that uh, it will take you five or six times as long as uh, you expect. You have a very high uncertainty. And uncertainty is one of the things that I think help shift the conversation a bit because uncertainty is something that no one is comfortable with. You know, as a product person, I hate uncertainty, right? It makes it impossible for me to make any promises to my customers or any commitments. And as a developer, I also don't like uncertainty because that's what's causing stress and overtime and missed deadlines. So I think the quicker we can shift the conversation to uncertainty and risk, uh, the better. Uh, another thing I like to add is that I think over the past decade, I've analyzed 300 code bases at least, probably more. And one thing I almost always figured out was that when you find these really, really messy pieces of code, these complex hotspots, it was almost never the work of a single individual. It's almost always, you know, um, parts of the code where 
20, 30 people have contributed and half of them are long gone. They don't even work in the company. And this is another part of the problem that, uh, you know, no one really feels responsibility over that part of the code, right? You have the psychologist called diffusion of responsibility, right? So, you know, it's not my code. So let's just squeeze in this extra rape statement and uh, get rid of it. In one of your blog posts, you mentioned uh, uh, the, the broken window symptom or broken window uh, I don't know, principle, which is, uh, can, can you explain that? So I don't do it. Please tell us what it is. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's something I actually learned it from um, the Pragmatic uh, Programmer. Wonderful book. So they had, a, if I remember correctly, they have a short chapter about it. So the broken window, it's actually a term from uh, sociology, where the idea is that if you have a building, the building is abandoned and uh, someone smashes the window, the most important thing you can do is to immediately replace that window. Because if you leave it broken, then that's a signal that no one really cares, right? So next time someone will paint some graffiti or they will break into the building or they will put it on fire or whatever. Uh, and what they did with that pragmatic programmer was that they applied it to software. So you have this piece of code and uh, you introduce a quick and dirty fix into it. The next developer that comes into that detects that broken window. So now it, the code kind of signals that, yeah, this is okay to do, right? We can write nasty code like this. So you simply continue on that track. And um, that's kind of one reason that code uh, deteriorates. It's a very good analogy, I believe. I see yeah, I happens. like it too. <laughs> yeah, and, it works. And, and, and what are the symptoms of this broken window in a code? It's like a code which is written, uh, without a unit test or the code which is improperly formatted or the code which is uh, which is func functionally not working what is the what is the broken component here what's broken and very often it's multiple things so um unit testing a lack of test coverage is uh, very very common you might start out with a good enough coverage then you write a piece of code where you don't add any unit tests that's a clearly a broken window because now the bar is higher for the next programmer right we need to start by covering that mess with code and with tests before we can do anything. But it's also, it's also something you very typically see in the evolution of the code. So one thing I did in my books and uh, that we're having codes in is that when you find a piece of code, you can click on it and you can kind of see the complexity trend evolving over the years. And you very, very often see broken windows as a complexity trend that goes like this. It increases linearly, and then there's an extremely steep increase. And then it kind of tend to stabilize at a much higher level. So that's a way of bringing visibility to broken windows. And uh, probably the main responsibility of a software architect or the main technical person in the project is to fix those windows before we have many of them. Correct. I think it's a very important part. Yes, uh, but you know, detecting broken windows—that's one of the things that uh, tooling is uh, very, very good at. So just make sure you have some type of automated uh, code analysis in your development workflow, and um, you know, not only are you going to detect it, you're also bringing visibility to it. And to me, as a developer, you know, when I introduce a broken window, I like to know about it because that's a way for me to get feedback and improve. You know, when I ask people about maintainability of code or legacy code, the problems with these broken windows, the most common question coming from practical programmers is the following. 
what do I do when I'm in the project, which has tons of legacy code, and I have to work in this project, but I hate it. So what's the recipe for at least some happiness, some small piece of happiness we can have in such a project? Because most of the work is very routine and very annoying and very frustrating because all you deal with just broken windows here and there, here and there. So it's really hard to find even the, the not broken window. All of them are broken. So what would you suggest? What would you recommend to a programmer, practical programmer to do in a situation when you deal with large amount of legacy code? Yeah, so I've been in that situation myself for so many years, uh, all on in my career. And I think that it's very important with, um, and maybe that's the, another responsibility of um, the architect or the manager to make sure there is some positive reinforcement. And uh, that positive reinforcement is also something that you can have via tooling. So if you pick up this large messy class and uh, you actually manage to kind of extract a small piece, you manage to uh, cover it with uh, good tests, then why not have the tool give you a thumbs up and explain the improvement that you have done? Uh, I personally find stuff like that rewarding. I am, I actually am one of those people who enjoyed to work on large uh, legacy systems and take them to a better place. Because I think positive re reinforcement is key. And it's something that the process and uh, the organization uh, needs to support. So basically, you look at the building, you see 100 broken windows, and you decide, okay, I'm going to fix the window number 55 just to get some pleasure out of this work because I'm responsible for this one particular window and that gives you enjoyment at the end of the day. Am I right? Yeah, in, in essence, that's what it's about. And I think it's important that uh, like we have, we are so used as developers to have these quality gates, right? The bill is, uh, is red. But I think it's just as important to kind of push the positive uh, changes that we do, the improvements. Let's celebrate them. And um, how do you feel about uh, other programmers who are on the same team who are who keep breaking windows and you are in this team or one of those people or maybe just alone, just a single person who wants to fix the windows. But there are other 20 people around you who just every day they just break windows one after another. So again, like look at this from the psychological perspective. What would you recommend to a person like that to do if the, 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 the leaving the team is not an option? Oh, uh, I mean, it's uh, very frustrating. I haven't been in that situation for a long, long time, fortunately, because uh, when I started CodeScene, I put up a very basic rule that every developer that I'm hiring is has to be better than me. They have to be a better developer than I am. So on my team, I like to think that I'm the worst programmer, which is a very good situation to be in. So I haven't seen that problem in six years. I remember early on in my career, I definitely came across it. And it's it's extremely frustrating, particularly as a more uh, junior developer, because you, you simply don't have the social capital to um, you know, confront people with it and have those two conversations. You can bring it up, but uh, it's unlikely that someone is going to listen to you. So it's extremely frustrating. And I'm afraid I don't have any good advice. I would be curious what you would answer in that case. <laughs> Well, I, I recommend in this situation for people who land up in the situations like this is to extract a small piece out of this legacy system, just make a module out of it, which is window number 55, 
and then work on this window as a separate project. So just extract the module, make it a dependency, make maybe a new repository, and then set your own rules in this repository, and then make it perfect, make it beautiful, and then make the, the large legacy code just depend on this dependency, depend on this artifact, and that's it. So be your own uh, manager, be your own architect, be your own manager, try to become your own manager. And in most cases, I believe, other people and uh, your managers and other the team they will not be against that because who cares i mean you you still we still use the functionality we still have this piece of features from your from your window which was broken now it's fixed so most of the people will continue breaking windows and you will not be affected emotionally by that because you don't see those windows all you see is just your own window which is perfect which is fixed what do you think about this recommendation i like it i like it it's uh a little bit similar. I had a chapter in my uh, book that I called uh, where I wrote about the splinter pattern, which was basically I was addressing a different problem, but it was basically how do you refactor a massive class that's also being heavily developed in parallel by many, many other people, right? And uh, I, I've come to the same conclusion there that uh, that's one strategy that works that you cannot, you know, you need to extract those two small pieces, and you need to treat them as separate components that you can fix in isolation without caring about the rest of the mess. But I never thought about it from uh, your perspective. So I, I kind of like it. It resonates with me. And you know what I see also sometimes, very often actually, when the team is, uh, is in a mess right now and most of the windows are broken, then people uh, tend to find many, many reasons against the quality metrics. When you try to introduce some 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 tools or mechanisms or, or rules or principles about quality and you say that from now on we will we will pay attention to the amount of technical debt we have because it's important so if the technical debt grows then we basically take a pause for a few maybe weeks or days or months and we fix it and return the technical back the amount of technical debt back to the normal numbers then most of the people who are in the team right now they will give you tons of arguments against uh this approach against metrics in general against uh checking the technical debt amount in general against uh putting the project on pause and not delivering the functionality the tons of reasons will be there so and it will be hard to argue against those reasons because these people will be in majority very often um, and, and that's why i think in the industry in general uh it's so easy to find people uh who when they hear the word metric when they hear the word measuring of quality objectively, quantitatively, they will immediately jump into the analogy of, ah, maybe tomorrow you're going to calculate the number of lines of code we write. And that's it. After this analogy, all the discussions are stopped. Everybody will laugh and end of story. Have you seen that happening? Uh, yes, yes, I have seen that occasionally. And, uh... I like to think there are, there are two reasons for it. The first reason is, of course, that uh, metrics have been horribly misused uh, in the software industry, and they still are. And the second reason that I think is even more important is that um, most businesses simply don't value code quality. It's not a first-class citizen. If it would have been, no one would questioning it. No one would question the metrics because, you know, as a startup founder, I'm a technical founder, right? But I had to learn all this uh, financial terminology. I had to understand what ARR is, MRR, uh, churn, and uh, you know all that net retention, all that stuff. I had to learn that, and everyone understands that. I mean, the, 
the health of the whole company depends on those numbers, right? I'm not questioning it. Do we really need to measure how much revenue we're bringing? Do I need to make projections of that? No, it's no one would question that. But when it comes to software, since it's so abstract and kind of, you know, it doesn't have this, um, the same disability, we don't have any KPIs in the way we have financial KPIs for software. Then it's so, so easy to make it something like, yeah, yeah, it's something for the development team. And if you push it down as a manager on the development team, what happens is that it just becomes extra work, right? It's something that someone will hold against you. It's something you have to do where you could have spent your time hanging around the coffee machine or uh, writing some extra code or whatever. Right. And some people actually feel uh, comfortable of this writing code. Let's let's remove the hanging around the coffee machine because that's that's definitely one story. But the second story is people are the second story is about people who really love to write code the way they write code. So they don't like changing the style or the way they write code. They feel comfortable staying where they are. And when you as a manager or the technical architect or as another programmer, just a fellow programmer, come to them and say, now, from now on, we're going to pay attention to quality. For them, it means that they need to relearn something. They need to improve themselves. They need to basically abandon some of the styles of work they've, they, they've been having for years. And that means stress for them. And that stress immediately uh, triggers the, the negativity and reaction against the people who, who are trying to introduce that to them. So you look like a teacher for them. You look like a crazy professor who, uh, you know, uh, doesn't like to give them the good mark for the exam. And of course they get angry. So the question is how psychologically, emotionally we can get on board with these people and actually instead of fighting with them, somehow get them get the buy-in from them. So they will say, okay, I agree to, to learn something new. I agree that my code is not good right now. And the next year I need to improve it so that to satisfy your, uh, your metrics, which you introduce. So that's the question, how to become friends with them, how to uh, get them on board. Yeah, and it's a, it's a really important issue because uh, forcing a set of metrics on someone is usually not a good way to go because any metric can be gamed, of course. And the moment you start to game a metric, you lose important information and you make the whole situation worse. And, uh, you know, the metrics just become ridiculous. So I think it's uh, really, really important to get uh, a frame of reference. And uh, what I mean by that is that Particularly in larger companies. I mean, I was in that position myself early on in my career. I started to work in software 25 years ago. And uh, the first years I spent uh, in a you know, relatively small department within a larger company. And I like to think that after a couple of years, I thought of myself as a pretty good programmer. Then what happened to me was that I went to my first software development conference, uh, the ACCU, ACCU conference uh, in uh, England. And I remember going to that conference and thinking, hey, this is about C++, I'm a C++ wizard, I know everything there is to know about it. And the very first session was uh, Kevin Henney talking about multi-threading in C++. And I, it took me like 10 minutes to realize that, hey, there are very different levels to this game. I'm definitely not a good programmer, I'm a mediocre programmer at best. So to me, this has had a very, very motivating effect. I kind of, I realized I will never be that good, right? But I can definitely improve. There is a lot of ground to cover here. So to me, that kind of uh, triggered on, you know, a desire to learn more, to evolve. And I also think that um, we don't have to, 
I, I think that's important to get that external frame of reference. So I think that uh, taking the team, uh, going to a conference, invite external speakers, I think that's very, very important because it can start to bring up the discussion and give you that frame of reference. What I also think is that when introducing things like quality gates and metrics, I also think it's important to give people the time to learn. So instead of doing this uh, big bang thing, I'm a fan of kind of introducing things uh, iteratively and uh, gradually and uh, make sure that I always explain why we're doing this, why this thing is important. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And uh, let's turn a little bit our conversation to the technical uh, territory. Do you think uh, code quality is a language specific thing? Do you think certain languages, programming languages, are more of a high quality? So the code which you write in those languages, they just naturally will become of high quality. And some languages are are more prone to errors and, and, and troubles with the quality. In general, no, I don't think so. Uh, because I'm analyzing code in all kinds of languages. And uh, I, I don't really see a correlation in terms of uh, language features or uh, language capabilities. What I do see is that um, the community around different languages have a huge impact on uh, software quality. So, uh, you know, when I prepare a talk and I'm looking for uh, good examples on different code smells, I always, always know that, you know, if I want to find really, really messy unit tests that overuse uh, mock frameworks, then I look at the .NET code bases. If I want to find some real spaghetti code, then I always uh, kind of Google uh, GitHub trending C++. And if I want to look for over-abstracted code, then I always uh, go for Java code. So I like to think that there are community practices that kind of influences the quality that gets implemented. I don't think it's the languages themselves necessarily. And who do you think we need to blame? I mean, let's use this word blame for the um, uh, low quality programmers or programming languages. Like your previous answer actually give the, the, the give me the impression that you would answer programmers, right? The communities of programmers. Uh, okay, let me then, then rephrase the question. Who would we blame uh, individual programmers or uh, common practices and the community around languages? Oh, this is actually quite hard because it's not easy to uh, break community practices as an individual. You're going to get uh, questioned. And uh, it might also, I mean, in some cases, it's actually better to follow a slightly worse principle as long as it's not directly harmful because it at least gives you consistency in your code and consistency in your solution together with your team. Uh, but yeah, I do think that community practices, they need to be questioned. Right, I'm, I'm not a good, I'm not a big fan of uh, things like uh, best practices because they're usually, uh, you know, they're very often they become a way of just ending our conversation instead of starting it. You know, I very often hear arguments like, I mean, it's Java, come on, what do you want from me? I mean, that's not possible to make it high quality or it's C++, it's a complex language, so that's why our code is so difficult to, to understand and there's the, the technical debt is so huge. So that's because we use this framework. That's why the quality is low. People say it very often. So what would you answer to them? Yeah, it, it's very, very common. And um, what I did was that um, when I worked as a consultant, what I very often did was that I uh, refactored that code uh, to have that conversation. And I 
you know, instead of talking about how we could do it, I kind of showed that, yeah, this is the way it could actually look. And uh, it was code. I did that, you know, completely separate, separate branch, something that wasn't merged to production. But it kind of gave, gave me the opportunities to show um, before and after. And uh, I think that so many developers, myself included, we learned pretty well by examples. So if we can see that, hey, this is objectively simpler than this, then that's a pretty strong argument. You show that it's possible and you show that there actually are some pretty simple patterns that you can follow. And I like to think that it applies to virtually any language with the possible exception of uh, assembly. And you think it's a job of a team or managers or architects to train people, to teach people, to help them learn how to write better code, or we as let's say architects and managers have to just enforce certain metrics and rules and say, either you write the code we expect you to write or uh, go back home to your homework, learn something, I mean, improve your style and then come back. So what's your, what's your take on that? We teach people, we train them, we mentor them, or we just set the, the quality bar high and expect them to satisfy our requirements. No, I think we have a huge responsibility as uh, managers and architects to uh, encourage a culture where everyone is uh, constantly learning. And I think a lot, a lot of the time, it's not so much about uh, educating or doing the education yourself. It's more about uh, removing all those barriers that normally exist in all organizations. So I used to have this trick uh, back in the day where I was still uh, working for someone else. What I used to do was when I went to a job interview was that I always had this question, you know, if I want to buy a book, a programming book, what's the process? And any company that had a process for that, I turned them down because I think that's one of those signals, right? If some developer wants to spend time learning something and they learn by reading, right? Then just buy the book, it doesn't cost anything, right? The time, time a book costs, I mean, it's the time it takes to read the book. That's the cost, not the price of the book. So just encourage things like that, make it simple for people to learn, use the intrinsic motivation of each individual. I think that's very important to build on and um, that will also benefit the whole business. You know, many business people will tell you that uh, if we train people, if we mentor them, we help them to become better and invest a lot of time into that. Eventually what we get in the end is that they quit and go work for larger companies with larger paychecks. So in the end, business loss, uh, losses uh, with this investment, loses this investment. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's very short-sighted in a way, because uh, if, if you look at the numbers from the industry, you see that uh, most people and they don't stay particularly long at the job anyway, right? And um, I also think that um, if you encourage that learning environment, if you make it very, very simple and uh, fun to learn, because it is fun, most people enjoy it, uh, then you're kind of also preventing, or not preventing necessarily, but uh, if people enjoy working for you, they're going to continue work for you, right? So I think that's an important component and you know, having cool stuff that they can work on also helps in retaining developers. Well, enjoying, like you said, the enjoying part for most people is not actually improving your skills every day. It's for some people, this is the enjoyment. But for majority of people, I believe for maybe you know, 80% of a large majority of people, uh, enjoyment is actually being on top of the learning pyramid. 
not being at the bottom and always look up to mentors and, and, and smarter people, but always look down and tell people that I am the smartest one. So only the minority of people would like me really enjoy uh, growing, while most of the people, the majority enjoy uh, relaxing and teaching others. Maybe that's 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 uh, that's my understanding of uh, like psychological breakdown of uh, people profile. So it seems to me that uh, uh, if you uh, if you put people into a stressful position where they constantly need to improve and learn and to become better then this is not exactly the enjoyment for them it's like a training territory for them which they will happily pass in order to get to a more comfortable territory in another company where they will become mentors and they will become architects and so on and so forth so don't you think that by uh, by uh, cult by encouraging and uh, encouraging your team and cultivating the culture of constant training and constant learning you only will stay with the best people, but the majority of people, which will, will, will use your territory as a training base and will, after that, will jump to other companies. I'm not sure. Maybe you're right. I haven't thought that deeply about that. Uh, what, what I like to think is that um, it's also, I mean, one way of kind of uh, limiting that stress as well is to make sure that you have very, very clear goals and uh, that uh, those goals are something that you have in common with your peers. Because, um, you know, learning for me and education for me is not necessarily only going to, uh, to take a course or uh, reading a book. It's also something that can happen all the time on the job. You know, if I have on if I know that I have the freedom to try out something new, right? Maybe I can try a new solution, right? Something I came up with me myself, then that's also important learning. If I have the opportunity to pair together with my, one of my peers at any time, then that's also a learning opportunity. So that's kind of what I mean with the culture of uh, learning that you kind of remove all those barriers, right? Uh, and if you need those barriers, then I think it's a clear sign that you haven't, as a manager, you haven't managed to hire the right people. So your uh, your criteria when you hire people is that they have to be better programmers than yourself. Am I right? Yes, they have to be better uh, developers than me at uh, some aspect of what we do. Definitely, that's important. I never compromise on that. And do you check their quality, their, their their code when they come to your to, to interview with you? Do you ask them to show uh, you the code they wrote before? Do you do you check the code the quality of it? Visually. Yes, we do. We, we do. We actually, I'm, I'm not a big fan of these typical whiteboard interviews. We never do them. So what we do instead is that uh, we ask people that, um, you know, we take a look at their GitHub account and the people that kind of move on to an uh, in-person interview. Uh, one of the steps is always that we run their code through uh, CodeScene and then we have a conversation around the findings. That's a good and it, it's, it's it's really really interesting you know and um where i'm personal again i'm never after perfection right i think it's perfectly fine you might have some code it's not ideal the interesting thing is the conversation you have around that why is it that way what could be done instead that's much much more interesting so that's what we do that's excellent idea i will try to do the same so you basically run some some static analyzer, some quality checker. It will show some complaints, and then you ask them, "What do you think about that? Why did you make the code better?" And so on and so forth. Right? 
Yeah, exactly. And what you will find is that so many of those developers, they have already kind of uh, talked about those things or they are kind of, uh, you know, they have an idea and they kind of, what, what you kind of want to show that is that you as a developer, you have the ability to kind of step back. You are not your code, right? And you can have a conversation around it. I find that valuable as well. Okay, my last question to you. Um, you wrote a book a few years ago called Your Code as a Crime Scene. So what's in the book and why our listeners should buy it and read it? Just give us a brief, quick explanation. What's there? Yeah, so uh, dear listener, you should actually buy the follow-up Software Design X-Rays. I like to think it's uh, the better book because I learned so much between writing those books. Both books are about uh, how to build uh, maintainable code and uh, a lot of strategies for succeeding with that. And those strategies, they uh, take a lot of inspiration from uh, psychology that we apply on top of our uh, technical engineering foundation. And uh, there are a bunch of techniques that will help you to prioritize technical debt. There are techniques for addressing technical debt, but there are also a bunch of techniques for kind of measuring and visualizing the whole team dimension of software in the context of the architecture, which is something that's, I would say, just as important as any properties of the code. So please check out Software Design X-Rays. All right, thank you very much. We will definitely do so. And thanks for coming for this conversation. I enjoyed it. I mean, I took a number of uh, interesting thoughts and I will try to uh, practice them in my, in my life, my work. Yeah, thanks a lot for inviting me. I really enjoyed this. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.